Now we give a warm welcome to everyone joining with us for worship this evening, both those in the building and those who are joining with us online. Let's begin our worship by singing to God's praise in Psalm number 1. It's found on page 200 of the Psalter, Psalm 1, and at page 200. At the beginning of the psalm, That man hath perfect blessedness, who walketh not astray in counsel of ungodly men, nor stands in sinners' way, nor sitteth in the scorner's chair, but placeth his delight upon God's law and meditates on his law day and night. We'll sing the whole song to God's praise. Psalm 1 at the beginning, That man hath perfect blessedness.
Now let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, you have reminded us once again in the words of the song that we have been singing that this world, this very night, at this very point in time, is divided into two very distinctive groups of people the wicked and the righteous. And we pray that we would be able to understand what being righteous means because at one level we are all wicked, born in sin and shapen in iniquity. But we thank you in the revelation you have given to us that such as we are sinners can be made righteous in the eyes of a holy God. These are astonishing truths but that's the way it is and we delight in that here this night we pray that we would continue to meditate in your law the bible that you have given to us and that we would find our strength and stability for each and every day in you we realize that the wicked are described in that song as like the chaff which is blown this way, that way and the next day. No solid ground to stand on whatsoever. But we thank you that for those who have believed you and who are in covenant with you, they stand on a rock. And that rock is Christ. And that rock is absolutely and utterly immovable. We ask you to forgive us for the days that we forget these truths. We ask you to forgive us for the days that we are all over the place because we have reverted to our old ways and we are um, not looking to Christ in the way that we ought uh, to be. We give thanks, O Lord, for this day and the tranquility of this place we look around this world and see so much chaos and devastation. We look at the devastation in the Ukraine at a time like this and we pray for hostilities to cease. And we pray that those who are in positions of authority, who are abusing that authority, that they would be removed from power. But we do remind ourselves that the West that is so idolized in their press these days has its own faults and has its own flaws. O Lord our God, sometimes it is just so hard to determine who is telling the truth. But we would ask you to give those who are in positions of authority and power and in places of decision making who honour you the strength and the guidance to be fearless in the face of opposition. And uh, even although we may be thanking you for the tranquility of this place and this moment in time, we realise that even the house of God can be a place of torture for the people of God and what we mean by that is the enemy of our souls just comes in like a flood and causes all kinds of chaos 
and all kinds of devastation. We pray that you would uh, keep them at bay and that you would enable us to worship you in a way that is well-pleasing to you. We remind ourselves that when Noah came out of that ark and there was devastation everywhere, the whole world was dead apart from eight souls, yet in the midst of that, he offered up worship to you that was as a pleasing aroma in your presence. And we pray that we would offer up that same kind of worship this night. We pray that you would enable us to taste and see that God is good afresh. We remember those who would be here if they could but who cannot. Be a blessing to them. And we pray that you would remember those who are worried about loved ones, who are ill or who are facing difficult issues, difficult problems. Life is surrounded by stresses and strains of all kinds. We pray that we would come to you for the grace that we need for each and every day. Remember our loved ones, wherever they might be this night. Have mercy upon them. May we remind ourselves that time is swiftly passing by and soon we shall be gone and the place thereof shall know us no more forever. But we remember this, that the steadfast love of God is forevermore. The consequences of grace are eternal. And we thank you for that. O Lord our God, in the busyness of this world that we live in at times seems so chaotic, may we all get our priorities right. And may we make absolutely sure about the great issue of the eternal destiny of our souls. So be with us, we pray. Guide us and keep us and bless us all. And all we ask is in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's sing again to God's praise. It's Psalm number 34. It's found on page 40 of the Psalter. And it's at the beginning of the song, At all times I will bless the Lord. I will praise him with my voice. Because I glory in the Lord, let troubled souls rejoice. Together let us praise the Lord. Exalt his name with me. I sought the Lord. His answer came from fears. He set me free. We'll sing verses 1 to 7 of Psalm 34. At all times I will bless the Lord.
Now let's read God's word as we find it in the Gospel according to St. Luke chapter 23 and we'll read it verse 26. And as they led Jesus away they seized on Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fallen us. And to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with them. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, He praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances, and the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. 
And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation <clears throat> and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Amen and may God bless to us that reading from this word. Let's join together again in prayer. O Lord our God, we admire the commitment and the dedication of these women. And we also admire the fact that even although they did wanted to do something that expressed their love for Christ, they remembered that it was the Sabbath day and they listened to you and they waited. And we pray that we would remember that such dedication and such commitment and such obedience is always rewarded. We realize that salvation is a gift that you give but when someone is in then everything they do in honor of your name is rewarded even to the extent of a cup of cold water. We pray, O Lord, that we would be harnessing our time and our talents in this world, because soon this phase shall be over for all of us. And we pray that we would have a mind for evangelism, because there is no evangelism in heaven nor is there any evangelism in hell this is the time and place of it and we pray that we would have a heart for it and we pray that you'd remember us as a church we pray that others would come and they too would taste and see that God is indeed good we pray that as we turn to your word this night to explore it afresh that you would open our eyes and you would help us. You know our needs. And the reality is this, our needs are greater than we have comprehended ourselves. But we know this also, that you can meet them all and we pray that we would lean on you at all times. That we would lean on you for preaching. That we would lean on you for hearing. That we would lean on you for worshipping. So be with us, we pray. Have mercy upon us. And whatever your church is gathered throughout this world this night, maybe just in twos and threes, and sometimes just one person,
in sheer loneliness. May they know your presence. And may we know your blessing. And all we ask is in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's continue to sing to God's praise in the same song, Psalm 34, page 40, at verse 8. Come taste and see the Lord is good, who trusts in him is blessed. O fear the Lord, you saints, with need you will not be oppressed. Young lions may grow weak and faint and hunger for their food, but those who wait upon the Lord will not lack any good. Uh, We'll sing verses 8 to 14 of Psalm 34. Come taste and see the Lord is good.
Now let's turn to the passage we have read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and we'll read again at verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now let's, by God's enabling, seek to explore something of this particular area of uh, Scripture. We have been looking uh, in the last few sermons at the Easter story. And what we want to do this night is to basically take this text and to divide it into three different areas. We want to look first of all at how Christ called out. Because we are told it was with a loud voice. And then we want to look secondly at what he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And thirdly we want to look at the fact that um, he then, <clears throat> having said that, breathed his last. So let's, by God's enabling, uh, seek to explore <clears throat> something of each of these three uh, headings. We read uh, in Matthew's Gospel concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that he shall not strive or call out aloud. And that was a quote from uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. Now sometimes uh, you will find people and in order to champion their cause they can be very vociferous and very loud and even to the point of irritation. You do not find that in the experience of Jesus of uh, Nazareth. In fact, <clears throat> sometimes, and we've looked at this recently, sometimes Jesus says nothing at all. And what I mean by that is, Sometimes he says nothing at all when people come to him looking for him to say something. And a prime example of that is a King Herod, who came not just looking to hear something from Jesus, but looking for Jesus to perform a miracle. He gets no miracle and he doesn't get a single syllable from the lips of Jesus. Now when that happens, that is deeply concerning. But we would also say that when that happens, there is a reason for it happening. You see, this is the God-man. And being the God-man, he knows us through and through. Now, this is a strange thing. Sometimes we try to hoodwink ourselves. Sometimes we try to pretend about things to ourselves. Sometimes we try to do the same with God. We try to hoodwink God. We try to pretend before God. 
And these are acts of folly. And these are acts of futility. The psalmist could say, O Lord, thou hast me searched unknown. Thou knowest my sitting down and rising up. Now, these are private things. When we get up in the morning and when we lie down at night, sometimes we are all alone. Sometimes it's a wife or a spouse, husband. But these are very private and intimate things. Now, sometimes we do things that are out in the public. And sometimes we do things that are not quite private, but sometimes they are very, very private. And what God is revealing to us in that particular song is this. He knows it all. Utterly and absolutely. And it's not just what he sees outwardly. The head of the pillow or putting it down. Yea, all my thoughts afar to thee are known. And here's, here's where it gets really mysterious. The psalmist goes on to speak about God knowing the words that are going to be on our lips before we utter them. Now words come on to our lips because we have a process in our minds and our minds control what comes out of our, out of our, out of our lips. And sometimes within our minds we decide to ex- give expression, we decide to verbalize. And other times there are things in our minds and we think, no, I'm not going to say that, I'm going to keep that to myself. And nobody would know that that thought or these words are inside, nobody would know that. But he knows it. He knows it all, absolutely and utterly. And you know, the mind is a strange thing. There's so much mystery eh, to it. You know, I mentioned in the prayer today that this is a place of tranquility this evening. We are not being eh, harassed or, or eh, we are not encountering difficulties from the state or from individuals. We are at liberty to engage in an act of worship here and, and nobody's bothering us. That does not mean for one second that in our minds we have balance and equilibrium. Because in any given mind there can be just a raging going on. And the raging is stirred up by the enemy of our souls. And sometimes that takes very... Deep strength and will to deal with. In fact, I think that E statement even has to be qualified. Because sometimes it's almost as if you can't control your mind. You know, you, you have a thought and you think, I don't want to be thinking like that. I don't want these thoughts. I want rid of them. But they don't seem to go. And it can be torture. It can be absolute torture. But let's remember this. We know about it. Nobody else might know a single thing about it. But he does. He does. He knows us utterly and absolutely. He knows us uh, through 
and through. And it's because he knew Herod and what his thoughts were and what his motives were that there's no miracle and there's not even a, a syllable. But that's the way Jesus goes about things. I know that we get an insight into him being angry when he cleansed the temple. Maybe he cleansed the temple on two occasions. Some people believe that. But um, there is such a thing as a righteous anger. You know, there are times. You know, there are times when it would be wrong not to be angry. Sometimes we admire people who seem to go through life and they're on an even keel all the time and they never get irritated. They're never up nor down. They're always the same and we kind of admire that. And, and I think I know why that's admired. But I'm not sure if it's always good and if it's always wholesome. Because there is a time to speak and there is a time to be silent. And if we see things that are going on that are wrong, we need to be speaking up and we need to be defending the defenseless and we need to be angry in a righteous kind of way. You know, that word angry, we feed into it all our ideas about human anger and so often our human anger is wrong. It's full of malevolence and it's full of maliciousness and it's full of revenge. And these are not good things. These are not good things. But there is such a thing as a good and wholesome and righteous and a holy anger. And you see it with Jesus. You see it in this cleansing of the temple. But that looks to be a fairly rare occurrence in the history that we have of, uh, of Jesus of Nazareth. Isaiah could say seven or more than 700 years before he's in this world. He's not going to be raising his voice in the street. He's not going to be uh, doing that. And yet here we have him. And he's calling out with a loud voice. Now do you remember how it was with Pontius Pilate as he tries all kinds of things to get Jesus off his hands? He sends Jesus to Herod and he hopes that that's the end of his problem. He, um, he offers the release of a political prisoner at Passover time and he hopes that they'll go for Jesus and the, the crowd don't go for Jesus and he's very disappointed about that he even goes to the length of getting a basin of water out and washing his hands publicly before the crowd saying I'm not guilty of this man's blood I'm innocent concerning this now he's, he's hoodwinking himself he is pretending now, now I think I can understand why he's doing that because he's in a real real predicament because after all he's the judge in Jerusalem he has the final say on the execution of any individual and that's what the crowd want concerning Jesus of Nazareth execution in fact it's not just execution it's crucifixion but only Pilate can give that decision and so he's between a rock and a hard place and his wife doesn't help at all because she has a dream about Jesus and her, the result of that dream is that she's been deeply 
disturbed and she's saying to her husband have nothing at all to do with with what have nothing at all to do with that righteous man and of course that's Pilate's verdict as well not just once or twice but on at least three occasions and maybe more I find no fault in this man and we expect him then to release him and let him go you know, some, if somebody over, if a sheriff over in the Justice Centre in Inverness tomorrow should have somebody come up before him and uh, if the sheriff should say to that person, you know, I don't think you've done anything wrong, but I'm going to send you to Porterfield for five years anyway. Tuesday morning's papers would be full of it. There would be headlines all over the place. Why? And rightly so. But why? Because of the injustice of it. We expect justice from those who are authorized to serve justice. And we expect Pontius Pilate to say, you're free to go. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. But one of the ways he tries to wriggle out of the difficulty he finds himself in is he says to the crowd as Jesus hangs on the cross on Easter Friday he says behold the man. Look at the man. And what, what is he trying to do? Well I think he's appealing or at least he's hoping to appeal to something of the remnants of sympathy that there might be in the hearts of that crowd that they might just look at this poor, bedraggled, wretched man only a man not the God he said he was not the son of God not even the king he claimed to be here he is and he claimed divinity. Here he is and he said he was the son of God. Here he is and he said that he, he agreed that he was the king of the Jews. But it's all a wild delusion. And now all his aspirations, they are completely and utterly shattered. And all his dreams are in tatters. And all you've got really is just a poor poor man and and nothing less else nothing else behold the man behold the man with blood sweat and tears behold the man as he limps towards the end behold him but is it really like that is it really like that well not according to this verse of scripture because here he is and he's not whispering and he's not on the brink and he's not capitulating and he's not succumbing and he's not going under because he has got strength and he has got energy 
and he has got verve and he has got determination because he cries we are told with a loud voice and when you think of all that he has been through that itself is so remarkable that is astonishing here he is and uh, as he hangs there wearied of them then Jesus calling out with a loud voice and that brings me on to my second point what he says Father into your hands I commit my spirit now that's interesting because you will remember that we read of the Christmas event or what's become known as the Christmas event we read of the birth of Jesus on more than one occasion in scripture and then it all goes quiet for a period of well when he's 12 years old we get a little window into his life and they are going up there to the city of Jerusalem Mary and Joseph and Jesus and on the way home he disappears or at least he's not to be found when they go looking for him and eventually they go back to Jerusalem and they find him and at the age of 12 he is baffling the leading lights of Jerusalem now that tells us something about this person I don't know how old he was when he started reading but we do know this much that he put effort and energy into it it didn't just fall into place and that's the way it is with being human you know when Jesus takes his very first step I don't know how it happens but I guess it's like your average home maybe the dad is there uh, encouraging him to go to his mum and the mum's hands are out and come on, come on, come on and he takes a first faltering step did he fall? Did, I'm not sure if he fell or not but if he did he would be very human you see I do think that we have this kind of idea of him as being a kind of superhuman almost this glorious ally of God and man and everything fell into place and everything was a doddle and everything was straightforward it wasn't like that at all he has to learn an alphabet he has to string syllables together he has to string words together to get his first sentence and by and by he can read and he's into the Old Testament but by 12 years old he knows a great deal of stuff because he's put in the effort and he has put in the energy you know and it's like that with being a Christian as well so I think sometimes we think you know being a Christian everything's going to fall into place everything will fall into place as long as we fulfill our duties and obligations we are responsible human agents even responsible saved human agents but he baffles them with his knowledge but you know what he says when his parents speak to him wist ye not 
that I must be about my father's business. Who was his father? God. The God I spoke about this morning. He, he had that to the fore of his mind or, or he had him I should say to the fore of his mind all the time and he's calling him father and you remember the prayer that he gave his disciples it was this our father which art in heaven and you remember at his baptism what his father said about him you're my son I love you and we know why God said that because not for simply 12 years but for 30 years he has listened to everything God has had to say to him and he has rendered a complete and utter obedience no wonder his father in heaven was saying you are my son and I love it and that is uttered again on the Mount of Transfiguration and let's remember that the Mount of Transfiguration comes towards the end of Jesus' ministry when he's 33 years old and Calvary is not far away and his Father in Heaven is saying to him you're my son and I love it you're my beloved son but it's not just the Father who's saying that, although we don't have a record of it. We understand that Jesus is saying to his Heavenly Father, You're my Father. And I love it. That bond is there. Now, I know we're getting into difficult territory because very often we fill into the idea of being a father, earthly fatherhood. And so often earthly fatherhood and motherhood is so severely flawed. It's not that the fatherhood of God is something like earthly fathers. It's the other way around. Earthly fathers are something like the fatherhood of God. But we're a long way off it, even for the best of, of fathers. But it's this fatherhood that Jesus of Nazareth has. And it's that bond he relishes. And it's that bond he so, so appreciates. But you will remember that one of the seven sayings of the cross is this. It's not my father, my father. Why have you forsaken me? That has all gone. That has completely and utterly gone. That's obliterated. And what he's saying is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now at one level it's easy to answer that question because he has been forsaken because sin is so ugly and is so huge and is so massive that the only way it can be dealt with is in this way. And it requires the forsaking of the father of the father of the son 
So at one level it's easy to answer that question. It's because you and I are sinners and has to be dealt with. But I do realize that there are depths in these words that we cannot enter into. Not yet anyway. Now that doesn't mean that we don't pry, but as long as we know when to stop prying, because there are things that we have to just leave with God. But it is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But that's behind him now. That's behind him now. He is back to this relationship of Father. And that's what he's saying in this very uh, passage of uh, Scripture. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that leads me on to the third part of this verse, and it is this. Having said this, he breathed his last. There are two things I want to speak about. One is the complete and utter control of Jesus in this whole series of events. You know, you'll not die this way, nor will I. We will be defeated by death. It will master us. It will overwhelm us. We will succumb to it. And we'll go under because of it. That's not what's happening here. That is utterly and absolutely not what is happening here. He's not this feeble effort of a man who whimpers and whispers something. He cries with a loud voice. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you know, it's a fascinating thing. The interaction between a soul and a body because Jesus here is in complete and utter control of both because he commits his soul to God and he breathes his last there's a soul aspect of it and there's a body or physical aspect of it And he is in complete and utter control of it all. He hands over his soul to God. He breathes his last. And in the words of another of the gospel writers, he bows his head. And he gives up the ghost. Only when he gives the say-so, only when he's ready, Only when he gives the command. What's this all about? Well it's the reverse of what you and I will be about. 
Because you know even as saved people We still have to go through the avenue of death I know the final destiny of a believer is so so different to the final destiny of an unbeliever it's the difference between heaven and hell but we even as believers still have to go through the avenue of death and that's all bound up with the fact that the wages of sin is death but we are mastered by it we cannot hold it back it will defeat us it's all in the opposite direction for Jesus of Nazareth. It's all in the opposite direction. He's not whimpering away. He's not whispering as the light goes out. He's not fading. He is there in all his radiant splendor, doing what he came into the world to do. And in through the mists of eternity it was determined that there would be a substitute who would stand in the place instead of sinners. And that's what the Easter story is really all about. That's what it's all about. And that's why you and I here this night should lift up our heads despite us being the greatest sinners in the world we have a hope or as I can put it in the way that I was trying to convey it this morning he has gone beyond the veil he's torn the curtain that keeps sinners from the holy of holies he's torn it from the top to the bottom he's torn it asunder and he has gone in there as the first fruits and so the harvest will follow him. So the harvest will follow him. I guess I'm back to this. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift. But it was a hard-earned gift. But he earned it. And he's given it to us. How we should bow afresh in worship and in adoration let's conclude by singing the final few verses of this song Psalm 34 on page 41 at verse 15 the Lord's eyes are upon the just he listens to their plea the wicked he rejects and blots from earth their memory the righteous cry the Lord responds and frees them when distressed the Lord draws near the broken heart and rescues the depressed. We'll sing these verses to the end of the psalm. The Lord's eyes are upon the just.
may grace, mercy, and peace from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest on and abide with each one, both now and forever.